This Janet Meffer Today archived broadcast is brought to you by Heart for Lebanon. We're trying to provide 100 refugee families with emergency supplies and the gospel during this urgent time of crisis. Your gift of $116 will help two families. Please help today by calling 888-247-5499. That's 888-247-5499. Or there's a banner to click at JanetMefford.com. This is Janet Mefford Today. Our confidence is in Christ alone. Are we going to stand with God come what may? If the Word of God says it, I believe it! And that's the way it is. And now, here is Janet Mefford. Welcome, everybody. At the recent Democratic National Convention, former Ohio Governor John Kasich spoke of Republicans and independents who think Biden may turn sharp left and leave them behind. And Kasich went on to say, I don't believe that. I know the measure of the man. Yet even The Atlantic admitted something interesting last month when it published this line. Despite embracing an agenda that is further to the left than that of any Democratic nominee in decades, Joe Biden has avoided the specific policy proposals and kept phrases that Republicans find easiest to attack. As a result, he appears more centrist than he actually is. So why do we keep hearing this persistent myth that Joe Biden is some kind of moderate? We're going to talk about that today with author George Newmeyer, who has served as executive editor of the American Spectator and Catholic World Report, as well as media fellow at Stanford's Hoover Institution. His new book is called The Biden Deception, Moderate Opportunist or the Democrats Crypto Socialist. George, thank you so much for being here. It's great to have you. Thank you for having me. Sure thing. Well, Joe Biden seems to just morph over the years with wherever the Democrat Party happens to be at the moment. Would you say there's any sense in which he qualifies as a moderate at this point? No, he abandoned moderation, you know, a long time ago. Uh, You know, in the 1990s, when the Democrats were under Bill Clinton, were trying to triangulate the Republicans, he was more moderate. But as the party moved to the far left, uh, he followed the party to the far left. And that's really, you know, he's an opportunist and a crypto socialist. You know, he uh, he is, you know, he will not govern as a moderate, as a harmless moderate. He will govern as a far left Democrat. And that's been punctuated by that working group he formed with Bernie Sanders and AOC, in which he produced a manifesto laying out a bunch of far left positions. Yeah, absolutely. Well, he's the one who was so angry with President Trump a couple of days ago that he referred to Trump, likened him to Joseph Goebbels, just for saying that Biden was on, you know, in line with a socialist agenda. Is that protesting too much, would you say? Oh, I would say so. Yes. Um, yeah. I, I, you know, he he uh, reacts in that irascible manner because he knows that the charge is true. Uh, the fact is that Joe Biden wants to raise taxes by four trillion dollars. He's adopted Bernie Sanders' rationale for taxation, which is to redistribute wealth. You know, he he doesn't believe in the traditional understanding of taxation, which is to finance the legitimate functions of government. He thinks it exists to eradicate inequality. And so that makes him just like Bernie Sanders, a redistributionist at heart. Yeah, but he's supposed to be Scranton Joe, right? The regular guy, the lunch bucket guy. I mean, he left that behind a long time ago. But how does he continue to you know, put forward that persona when he's left it in the dust many decades ago? And, and yet some people still buy into that. Well, I guess it has to do with his, you know, he he presents a personality that is, you know, uh, seemingly, you know, harmless. And I think that's why he was chosen by the powers that be of the Democratic Party. They saw him as a deceptive sort of front man for the left wing revolution. He's not as overtly 
uh, radical as Bernie Sanders. So they wanted somebody who would be, a, a, you know, ostensibly innocuous uh, to lead the revolution. Yeah. And, and Joe Biden fit the bill. Well, do you think Joe Biden, I mean, this is a little bit of an aside at this point, but when we're looking at all the gaffes he's committed, all the confusion that he's demonstrated in some of these interviews that he's taken on, the interviews that he'll do, he spends an awful lot of time trying to get out of answering questions. I mean, is Joe Biden actually going to be, if he is elected president, would he actually serve there or will he truly be a front man for Kamala Harris or whoever else they want to get in there to actually run things? Yeah, I, th- I mean, I, th- I think he he revealed where he truly stands by selecting Kam- Kamala Harris as his uh, running mate. She is the most liberal member of the U.S. Senate. She's a San Francisco radical. She's somebody who completely subscribes to the radical ideology of Black Lives Matter. She wanted to spring um, rioters from jail, you know. Uh, so, yeah, I, I, th- I think... Um, uh, you know, it's pretty clear that that uh, Biden is not going to move to the middle as president. He's going to move to the left, and he'll probably, in all likelihood, hand the presidency off to Kamala Harris because it's very unlikely that he'll be able to finish his first term. Wow, it's incredible. So we've got character issues with Joe Biden, the line. There are a lot of things to talk about, but let's talk a little bit about his policies. You had mentioned, for example, the $4 trillion tax hike that Americans could be facing. You've pointed out, for example, the middle class really would feel the heat from that more than the wealthy, but he's putting it out there as let's make the wealthy pay their fair share. How would it actually play out if he were able to bring this to pass? Right. You know, the Trump tax cut, the primary beneficiary of it was the middle class. And so when when, uh, Biden goes around saying that the very first thing he's going to do is eliminate the Trump tax cut, that really is a promise to increase taxes on the middle class. You know, he might say that it will only hit the rich, but that the Trump tax cut, in fact, was primarily designed to help the middle class. Another reason we can expect the middle class to be hit by Biden is that his spending plans are so extravagant, you know, trillions of dollars for the new, new the Green New Deal. The only way that that could possibly be paid for is if taxes go up on the middle class. Right. Well, and getting rid of jobs as well. I mean, you've said he would decimate the Rust Belt. He's talked about that. But then he flip-flops. He'll say one thing about fracking. They'll say another thing. He goes back and forth. But, you know, how much could he really help the economy when he's looking at the Green New Deal and concluding that we need to go all green and therefore all you guys in the Rust Belt, you're just out of luck. We're going to have to move on without you. Yeah, he's been incredibly cavalier about that. He told coal miners that, you know, you guys should learn how to code and <laughs> it won't be hard for you to become computer programmers. And the reality is that it's incredibly hard to retrain coal workers. And uh, even, you know, should they even find new jobs, those jobs are going to pay much less than they're making as coal miners right now. So, I, yeah, I, I think he, he is willing to sacrifice uh, millions of jobs for the sake of what amounts to uh, symbolic environmentalism, because, you know, his Green New Deal wouldn't have any impact on the world's te- on the uh, temperature, the climate. You know, it's, studies have been done which show that uh, even if all these sacrifices are made, uh, the temperature is going to remain essentially the same. Right. So those people who are still on the boat of thinking that this really is about some kind of global warming emergency, what's the real motivation behind it? Uh, the redistribution of wealth benefits who and why would the Democrats want this? Right. It's just a big pretext for increasing the size of government and you know uh, increasing taxes on people and rearranging the economy uh, in accordance with the wishes of the far left. 
To what extent do you think that Barack Obama is still playing a role in all of this? Because this is just kind of picking up the baton where Obama dropped it and and legislating in an even more radical direction. I think, uh, yeah, Obama is one of the figures pulling the strings behind Biden. And I think a number of the radical retreads from the Obama years, like Eric Holder and Susan Rice are also pulling the strings. And uh, I think the reason that they uh, ended up, you know, kind of driving Bernie Sanders out of the race and, and endorsing Biden was that they know his administration will serve as a gateway for all of the Obama people to come back into power. All the swampy Obama people will mm. find jobs in the Biden administration. Yeah. Do you think they're confident, though, that he actually can get elected? I mean, they're hiding him in the basement. He rarely makes an appearance. I know he's going to be debating President Trump, but this is a weird way to run for president. Even if we are in the middle of a pandemic and everything is via Zoom call, he seems to not be running. What do you make of that? I think that's the the strategy of the Democrats is to make this election entirely a referendum on Donald Trump. Yeah. And so they want, uh, towards that end, they want to keep Biden on the sidelines. They don't want him to appear and become the news of the day. They want all of the news of the day to be centered on Donald Trump. And unfortunately, that strategy seems to be working. Um, and uh, hopefully the debates will change that and Biden will become the issue and not just Trump. Yeah. So do you see the debates as a good thing then? Joe Biden's going to have to get out there and do his thing. Some people are saying, is he going to have an earpiece where he's being fed lines? I mean, we'll find out. But is it going to help him or hurt him, do you think? Uh, I think it it will hurt him. I think uh, it'll not only expose his mental decline, I think it'll expose the radicalism of his positions. I think Trump will come at him very hard and will show people that he he will be even worse than Obama as president. He'll be even more radical than Obama as president. And um, so, yeah, I think that's all to the good. Yeah. The Biden Deception is the name of the book. We're going to pause for a short break. George Newmeyer with us, and we'll be back on Janet Meffer today right after this. For several years now, Syrians have been pouring into the country of Lebanon to seek refuge amid terrorism and civil war. Now the crisis in Lebanon has escalated in the aftermath of COVID-19, a crumbling economy, and a devastating explosion in Beirut. Yet the spiritual crisis in Lebanon is the most devastating crisis of all because many people there have still never heard anything about Jesus. That's why Heart for Lebanon is on the ground ministering to hurting refugee families in the South and the Bekaa Valley in Lebanon, providing emergency supplies, Christian education, Bible studies, and worship gatherings for these refugee families. And the impact is incredible. Shana was one of those kids who had never heard about Jesus until God used Heart for Lebanon to give her the good news of eternal life. When she was given the assignment in Heart for Lebanon's educational program to write about a defining moment in her life, Shana chose to write this. We were in Syria, and we knew nothing about Christ the Lord. When we came to Lebanon, I joined Heart for Lebanon School. It is there where I got to know that Jesus Christ is the Savior of the world, and that whosoever worships Him will have eternal life. Shana had that opportunity to hear about Jesus because people just like you were willing to support the work of Heart for Lebanon, but they can't do it without your help. Your investment of $116 will help two families impacted by the crisis in Lebanon to get emergency supplies 
supplies that they need to survive during the next 60 days. But best of all, these families will hear the gospel of Jesus for the very first time. A gift of $58 is enough to help one family. Can you help? Call now, 888-247-5499, 888-247-5499, or there's a banner to click at JanetMefford.com. Once again, that number to call, 888-247-5499. A gift of $58 helps one family right now. Call 888-247-5499. You're listening to Janet Mefford today, and now here's Janet. Well, what are we to make of Joe Biden? The Biden deception, moderate opportunist or the Democrats crypto socialist. It's the name of the new book from George Newmeyer, who's joining us now. And we were talking about some of what Joe Biden believes and what he plans to do if he were to be elected president. Uh, one of the things that obviously is in the headlines right now, George, is the courts. Amy Coney Barrett has been the pick of President Trump to replace Ruth Bader Ginsburg. The left is going predictably nuts about this. You actually talk about how Biden would wreck the courts. Now, he has has not released his Supreme Court pick list. He hasn't talked about packing the court. He hasn't really owned up to any of the things that have been bandied about by the leftist pundits. But how would he wreck the courts? What's ahead for America if Biden is the one who gets into the White House? Well, he intends to stack the courts with liberal activists. You know, his view, his ideal judge is not a a judge, but a, a left-wing activist who will legislate from the bench according to whatever the liberal zeitgeist uh, demands. And so he has a, a view of the judiciary, which is fundamentally political, and that's how he's going to wreck the courts. You know, as a vice president, he prepared uh, Sonia Sotomayor for her hearings. Uh, recall that Sotomayor said that a wise Latina would govern, would, would be a better judge than a white male. Yes. And uh, so it, it's that kind of identity politics and politicization that Biden will use as his criteria for the courts. And that will simply have the effect of taking power out of the hands of the American people and putting it into the hands of nine unelected judges. Right. Well, and, and we're back in a way to the same kind of rhetoric that came out of the Obama White House when Obama tried to do lots of things through executive order, even though he talked about the fact that he didn't have the right to do it. He shouldn't constitutionally be able to do it, such as with the situation with DACA. But you already have Biden talking about doing a nationwide mask mandate, things like that. I'm already talking about how I'm going to mandate things for the American people. This isn't even tied to where the COVID-19 pandemic will be if and when he gets into office in January. How in the world can you be talking about a mask mandate via, you know, his power structure in and of himself when we don't even know what the situation will be health-wise in January? It's, you know, it's a power thing with these guys. Oh, yeah. I mean, we will see just a uh, profusion of nanny state liberalism under Biden and coronavirus will be a pretext for that. Um, And, uh, you know, I... I, uh, I think that's one of the compelling reasons, you know, why people should vote against Biden is that he is going to uh, take freedom away from the American people and put it in the hands of bureaucrats and judges. Uh, Very, very disconcerting. Here's something else that has come up. You know, he has distanced himself now from his support for the 1994 crime bill. People have read about this. But 
it's interesting to look at the 2020 Democrats policing plan, because even Vox has called it the most progressive in modern American history. You know, Biden has made an issue about I never said defund the police and all this. But what do you make of the Democrats policing plan, this, you know, top to bottom, you know, overhaul of the criminal justice system? What's ahead for America if Biden gets his way on that? Well, I think, you know, it'll just cause a spike in crime. You know, you know, weakening police departments across the country will simply be an invitation for criminals to commit more crime and, and produce more mayhem in all these Democrat-run cities. You know, I, I think it's, uh, you know, we're going to go from a law and order president to, you know, potentially a president who's captive to the most anti-police organization imaginable, Black Lives Matter. Yeah. That's right. That's right. It's uh, it's very scary to consider what would ha- happen if they try to move away from the concept of criminalization and focus more on investment and public health interventions. I mean, we've seen in the streets what would happen there. And that's, you know, that kind of segues into another issue for the American people. As you've seen the support, the public support in these polls going down for Black Lives Matter after what people are seeing on the news or on social media day after day after day about the looting and the, you know, all the violence that has gone on. Is there a sense in which that could backfire or the the lack of condemnation? I know they've come out a little bit and Biden has come out a little bit to try to distance himself a little bit, but not very strongly. Could that backfire on him long term? Because the people definitely, if you believe the polls are getting tired of it. Oh, yeah. I mean, uh, yeah, people want law and order. They expect that from the government. That's one of the few functions of the government to to maintain law and order. And so, you know, if Biden can't do that, uh, he's going to face a backlash from the people. You know, something like 13 Biden staffers donated to springing rioters from jail. And then Kamala Harris, of course, tweeted out that she wanted money sent to rioters to release them from jail. So, I I mean, I think these positions are really uh, pretty uh, outre and I think will alienate a lot of Americans and drive them into the arms of Donald Trump. Oh, I think so. And and what if the Second Amendment fight, this could be one of the most important issues on, on the whole horizon, is this issue of going after our Second Amendment rights. He had put confiscation activist Beto O'Rourke in, you know, as, oh, yeah, this guy's going to be my gun czar. This is very terrifying. When you see the left doing what they're doing in the streets, you see the tyranny that has emerged over the last several months in, in some hot spots over COVID. Why do they want to take our guns away? What What's going on with Biden and the Democrats on this issue of taking away people's guns? Well, they've always, you know, been anti-Second Amendment. They, you know, want to increase the power of the government and decrease the power of the individual. And taking guns away is, you know, fulfills that uh, goal. And so, yeah, I think, you know, that's that really is one of the strongest reasons to vote against Biden is that he's going to turn Beto O'Rourke into his gun czar and he's going to stack the courts with anti-Second Amendment judges. He's running with Kamala Harris, who's also talked about gun confiscation and gun restrictions. And so, yeah, if you if you cherish the Second Amendment, you better vote against Joe Biden. Yeah. And what about crushing religious freedom? This is a very important thing for people to wrap their heads around as well. How would he do that? What 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 does he have planned? Well, he's already said that he intends to resume the harassment of the little sisters of the poor that occurred under Obama. Yeah. So we can expect him to yeah just uh, take up where Obama left off in terms of the persecution of the religious. I, I predict that, you know, he's going to go even farther than Obama and he'll probably impose an abortion mandate on the American people and force force employers to pay for the abortions of their employees. 
he's certainly going to uh, exclude from public life any religious group that opposes his LGBT agenda. Yes. And um, so I think we're going to see a, just a massive diminution of religious freedom under Biden. Oh, I think you're right. And, and when you're talking about the LGBT issue, he is all behind the Equality Act. And we've been warning for a long time on our program about the Equality Act that this essentially would be the criminalization of Christianity. It really would. It would infringe terribly on religious freedom, freedom of, of Christians and other religious people in their own institutions to be able to operate according to their religious conscience. That thing would be a done deal wouldn't it? Especially if they were able to capture uh, yeah. the Senate. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah. He's made it very, he's made it explicitly clear on his campaign website that he, he doesn't believe in religious freedom. In fact, he talks about the limitations of religious freedom and basically says that wherever religious freedom conflicts with the goals of liberalism, it should be suppressed. Yeah. So, yeah, I mean, I, I think we're going to see, you know, Christian chaplains court-martialed. We're going to see Christian groups um, driven out of the public square and denied all federal uh, loans and, and, and contracts and so forth. And, uh, yeah, it's, it, we're going to see sort of a death of Christianity by a thousand cuts under Biden. I think you're absolutely right. And people need to really pay attention to that. Not to mention, going back to the character issue, we've got all these videos of Joe Biden pawing children. We've got the Hunter Biden scandal that the mainstream media is studiously trying to avoid. We've got Delaware State University now denying that Biden was ever a student there after he said he got started there at that historically black college. He, you know, was stymied by his plagiarism years ago. I mean, this guy, his character alone is just reprehensible. But there don't seem to be very many media outlets that seem to care about it at all. It's Biden, Biden, Biden at all costs. Go after Trump and his tax returns, but leave Biden alone. Yeah. And he get, yeah, he gets away with presenting himself as authentic when, in fact, he has a long history of lying and plagiarism, which goes all the way back to his law school days. As I show in my book, you know, he ripped off a law review article and put it into one of his his papers and got rebuked by his professor professor and so you know he's been uh he's never been authentic and he's never been honest and he's certainly not going to bring truth back to the white house um he's uh the consummate uh, swampy you know dc liar yeah why do you think it is that there are so many americans who are willing to go for biden given all of these facts on the ground is it a matter of ignorance overwhelmingly or is it a matter of they've been so inculcated in the Trump derangement syndrome that they're they're just kind of bot-like in saying, well, we have to get Trump out. He's a fascist, minus any actual evidence of that. What What is going on, do you think, in a lot of the minds of some of these American voters, apart from the radical base that would vote for anybody the Democrats put up, but just the average American who says, oh, yeah, I think Biden would be a much better president than Trump. I, I don't see why that would be other than ignorance. But what are your thoughts? Yeah, I think it's due to the political and media culture brainwashing the American people into thinking that these four years have been horrible when, in fact, they've really been four years of peace and prosperity. You know, if you exclude the coronavirus, the Trump presidency has been an overwhelming success. And yet the media and the political culture have just tried to convince people that, you know, he's he's like a foreign occupier. (laughs) You You think if you turned on CNN that we were under foreign occupation. They're so hysterical. Yeah. But in fact, I mean, if you just look at the record, uh, with the exception of coronavirus, it's really been a pretty pleasant and prosperous four years. Yeah. You know, no foreign entang- entanglements, really. No terrorist attacks of any substance to speak of. 
an economy that's basically been functioning. Um, so, uh, you know, I think we're going to look back, you know, if Trump does get voted out of office, it's going to be sort of like Winston Churchill losing in England after World War II. Mm. And people are going to say, why did we do that? Yeah. What was the point of this? Well, yeah, and we don't want to get to that point, but it is kind of an uphill fight, it would seem, the way the media is going and the way big tech is suppressing, you know, speech of conservatives all over the map. It's, you know, it's going to be one wild ride, but I'll tell you what, people need to pick up your book and learn more. It's called The Biden Deception, Moderate Opportunist or the Democrats, Crypto Socialist, George Newmeyer with us. And so good to have you here, George. Thanks for your great work, and it was wonderful to have you with us. Sure. Thank you very much for having me. You bet. Take care. And we'll be back on Janet Meffer today. This Janet Meffer Today archived broadcast is brought to you by Heart for Lebanon. We're trying to provide 100 refugee families with emergency supplies and the gospel during this urgent time of crisis. Your gift of $116 will help two families. Please help today by calling 888-247-5499. That's 888-247-5499. Or there's a banner to click at JanetMefford.com. This is Janet Mefford Today. And now, here's your host, Janet Mefford. Welcome back. The Lord is doing tremendous things right now in Lebanon. We have been telling you about our wonderful partnership with the great ministry, Heart for Lebanon, which is on the ground in that country. They are providing emergency supplies and Christian education and the gospel of Jesus to those who are in such desperate need of help and hope right now. And because of your generosity, we are almost halfway toward our goal of helping 100 families to get the supplies that they need to survive over the next 60 days. And best of all, to hear the good news of Jesus Christ and grow in their new faith in him, which is really happening in an incredible way over in these refugee camps where Heart for Lebanon is hard at work. And it's why we're thankful for what God is doing through this ministry. If you would like to help out, you can. $58 will help one family and an investment of $116 will help two families. You can call now, toll free. It's 888-247-5499. That's 888 888- 247-5499 or there is a banner to click over at JanetMeffer.com and we're going to get some more details on what is happening with Heart for Lebanon right now with its COO Tom Adama. Tom, so good to have you with us again. How are you? I'm doing real well. Thank you so much for having me. Always a pleasure to talk to you. I know there has been so much going on in the country of Lebanon just in the last couple of months, but can you give us an update, Tom, on what the Heart for Lebanon folks are doing on the ground at the moment? Sure. Two weeks ago today, I was actually in the Bekaa Valley, and I was entering a tent, an oversized Boy Scout tent on the side of a farmer field, and I walked inside. There was a mom, a, a widow, and five children. And I could tell right away that they were upset and they were kind of had this stare blank in their eyeballs and they just just looked full of despair. And I had one bag of food and one bag of non-food items with my guy that was with me in the Bible. And all of a sudden, she her eyes caught that food bag and she lit up like a Christmas tree. And she started crying profusely and coming up to me and hugging me and kissing me on my cheeks and saying, thank you, thank you, thank you so very much. Well, come to find out, she had not given those children a decent meal 
since August the 4th, the day of the explosion, because that blew the economy into a tailspin. And she couldn't find enough money to put together. And we only found her because of our relationship with a local church that we're working with. And that's what your support's helping us with, bringing not only physical need, but emotional needs. And yes, with that non-food parcel came the Bible, and we had an opportunity to share with her John chapter 3, verse 16. That is so wonderful. And I've been so appreciative of all the stories that I've heard from you guys, from you and others at Heart for Lebanon, about how giving that practical help to these people opens the door for them to hear the gospel. What is that connection, Tom, when you're working there in ministry with these families? What opportunities do you get to share the love of the Lord with these, these people who are in such great need just by meeting those practical needs? Far more than you'd realize, because Muslims doesn't mean doesn't mean that they've bought into the Quran. Most of Muslims have never even read the Quran, don't even know what it stands for. Hmm. They're just Muslim, like people in America might be in Christian America. So you, you got to be careful how you define it. In, but in the Muslim culture, when you're given something, you're expected to give something back. And when you give something and don't ask for anything back. It asks, they ask questions. They begin to wonder, what's going on here? This isn't normal. They should be asking me to do them a favor. Right. They've been giving me food and all this for six months, and they haven't asked for a thing. And eventually they'll ask us, so, Tom, Uncle Tom, why are you doing this? We're doing this because of the love of Jesus Christ. He compelled us. I mean, Acts chapter 11 is working out today. This is exactly what the people did before they were called Christians from Antioch when there was a famine in the land. Yes. They, they, they went and they helped out where they could with people they never knew, with people from a different culture, but they understood that generosity is, is a difference maker because most people aren't generous. They, they want something in return. That's a really significant angle on it that a lot of Americans might not realize. And, and when you encounter these families, you mentioned this one mom who is so desperate, but I know you work with so many desperate families, a lot of them coming in from Syria, the Syrian civil war and the havoc there. But now you've got this recent explosion in Beirut. You, you know, Lebanon's in really some serious anguish right now. And how have you seen the Lord work through some of the open doors? The deeper the crisis, the darker the night, the brighter the light. And in these five major crises, and I think there's six actually in the country of Lebanon, and I think this one's even true in our country at the moment, there's the pandemic of uncertainty. The pandemic of, I don't know what tomorrow brings, so I'm freezing myself in time. (laughs) So if you went with me downtown Beirut right now, most of the houses that are uh, not majorly damaged are already fixed up and repaired. They've moved on. They're sitting there waiting for the next shoe to drop. Mm -hmm. That's their way of dealing with it. But through it all, when people see your light, when people see who you are, without you saying a word, they want to know the difference. I had a lady come up to me when I was in Beirut two weeks ago, and and she's just off the street. She just comes up and says, are you an American? And I said, yes, ma'am, I'm from America. She said, is this the end times? (laughs) Now, I know she was Muslim because the way she was dressed. So why would make her ask that question? It's because... There's just something about Christians when they live in light of the gospel of Jesus Christ that people see. And it's it's true in my neighborhood. It's true in your neighborhood. It's true in your listeners' neighborhood. People want to know why you have peace. Why can you be so peaceful? Why can you be so calm when all this is going on? 
because I'm not uncertain about the future. I'm certain about the future because I'm certain about the God of the future. Amen. That's wonderful. And they see that hope and that joy and that peace that you have as a Christian and they want to know how to get that. And, you know, yeah, that's the neatest thing is that as you guys have been providing, I know, education for a lot of these children, they come to Lebanon in these refugee camps and they're not automatically given an education the way you might be in the United States. That opens doors not only for the kids to know the Lord, but for the parents to know the Lord. What is the situation right now with the churches gathering in these Bible studies that have come together in these camps? Well, I was in our church in the Bekaa a couple, three Sundays ago, and, and it's Hope Evangelical Church, and the Arabic-speaking service had 210 in it. Ugh. But the Kurdish-speaking church, I lost count at 224. Wow. Um, and I love Kurdish music. I love their preaching, too. But it was, <laughs> it's amazing what God is doing with the Kurdish and the Muslims, because here's what I, what's fascinating to me, that I never hear it in the United States. Muslims will come up to me, and remember, most of the people we deal with are living at or below the poverty line. Most of them are widows. Most of those widows are illiterate. So they memorize questions. And those questions put me to shame. And not just thinking about this. They've been processing this. They've been listening to the Bible on an audio stick. And they've got questions, and they come to church. So I got done preaching, and what didn't even get amen out of my mouth. And the first lady in the first row stood up and said, I've got a question about the message. And we went for another hour and a half. Mm. There is tremendous hunger for the Word of God. So out of that hunger, we have 85 people now that we're working with in a discipleship leadership program to develop them to go back to Syria or wherever they end up around the world and plant churches or revive churches for Muslim background believers. See, this is why I get so excited, because from the beginning, when we started to partner with Heart for Lebanon, we talked about this window of opportunity that the Lord has created out of a bad situation with the Syrian civil war. The good news was that all these people are open to the gospel. Now you're seeing more and more and more fruit from this. And that's why we just love you guys, Tom. This is such an important thing that people need to understand what the Lord is doing in the hearts of people who are desperate for the good news and and need that help that you as Christians are providing to to them. So I just want to refer people again, if you can help with Heart for Lebanon, we're trying to help 100 of these families really to survive over the next 60 days and also to hear the gospel and to get to know the Lord. You can call this number. It's 888-247-5499, 888-247-5499, or there is a banner to click at JanetMefford.com and $58 will help one family. $116 will help two families. Anything you can give would be incredibly, we would be so grateful for it. So 888-247-5499 or JanetMefford.com. Tom Adama, thank you so much for what you do, Tom, and thank you for being with us for this update. God bless you. God bless you. Thank you so very much, Janet. My honor. Wonderful organization. Heart for Lebanon. We'll be back on Janet Mefford today. Are you in need of a healthcare program? You're in luck. 
As a member of Liberty HealthShare, you're part of a community that comes together to share their medical expenses. You can sign up throughout the year with memberships starting as early as the following month, and there are no contracts or commitments. Programs start as low as $349 per month, and there's no network, so you can choose your own doctors and hospitals. Liberty HealthShare is a nonprofit ministry, not insurance, so your money goes toward helping other members with their eligible medical expenses. And in your time of need, other members are there for you, too. You can feel good knowing you're part of a community of like-minded individuals who understand the importance of people coming together to bear one another's burdens. Find out more at libertyhealthshare.org slash jmt. That's libertyhealthshare.org slash jmt. Or call now, 855-565-2561. 855-565-2561. Kevin Sorbo of the hit films God's Not Dead and Let There Be Light gives his thoughts on the scourge of abortion. One of the greatest attacks in America was an attack perpetrated by our very own Supreme Court. Now, subsequent to that, there have been 70 million babies slaughtered in the wombs of their mothers. That is more than the entire population of Canada and Australia combined. And that's why Kevin Sorbo also supports Preborn. I wanted to invite you to offer your full support for the ministry of Preborn and its leader, Dan Steiner. The team at Preborn is very focused and very successful at saving preborn babies from abortion. Will you join us in the cause for life? By letting a mother see her baby on ultrasound and hear the heartbeat, she'll choose life 80% of the time. For $140, you can help save five babies' lives. To donate, call 855-402-BABY. That's 855-402-2229. Or there's a preborn banner to click at JanetMefford.com. You're listening to Janet Mefford today. And now, here's Janet. Welcome back. Who's surprised that Representative Ilhan Omar is up to no good in Minnesota? Anybody? Anybody? Show of hands? Nobody's raising a hand. Yeah, I'm not really surprised about it either, but I am very, very grateful for the work of James O'Keefe and his team at Project Veritas. They are doing some fantastic work. I'm old enough to remember when news outlets, legitimate news outlets with you know, letters like CBS, ABC, NBC used to do stories like this, you know, actual public service investigative journalism. Uh, No more. They're just an arm of the DNC. But how far the mighty have fallen. At any rate, if you're just getting up to speed on what they uncovered, the headline is Ilhan Omar connected cash for ballots. Voter fraud scheme corrupts elections. And it, it basically comes down to an interview that they did with a ballot harvester named Libin Muhammad. And it's it's so corrupt. It's not completely surprising, but they, they report that these investigators have revealed this ballot harvesting scheme in Minneapolis involving Klan and political allies and associates of Omar. It's the first in a series of reports. They show a video here of Libin Muhammad in a series of Snapchat videos posted in July saying numbers don't lie. Numbers don't lie. You can see my car is full. All these here are absentee ballots. Can't you see my car is full? All these are for Jamal Osman. We got 300 today for Jamal only. Absolutely crazy. And O'Keefe says ballot harvesting is real. It has become a big business. Our investigation into this ballot harvesting ring demonstrates clearly how these unscrupulous operators exploit the elderly and immigrant communities and have turned this sacred ballot box into a commodities trading desk crazy stuff. The Hennepin County attorney told a Project Veritas journalist on a recorded line, the ballot harvesting conduct described to him was illegal and we will be 
investigating. Now, central to this investigation was Omar Jamal, a political insider active in the city's Somali community. Jamal works with the Ramsey County Sheriff's Department and is the chairman of the Somali watchdog group involved in the community, they say, for about 20 years. He's an insider. He said he was motivated to reach out to Project Veritas because he wants to eliminate the corruption that weakens his community, such as the ballot harvesting practiced by Minnesota's Democratic Farmer Labor Party, in which Elhan Omar has emerged as a rising power broker, he called all of this an open secret. And it's funny, too, because Laura Loomer, who used to work with Project Veritas and is now trying to become a congresswoman, she had talked about this several years ago and she got banned from the internet for talking about it. So she must feel pretty vindicated today. But here's what went on. Jamal interviewed a Somali-American who functions as a ballot harvester in his community. And the harvester described how he was paid to vote in the August 11th special election and primary along with a Project Veritas undercover journalist. The harvester said Somali-American vote-buying operatives from the Omar machine came to his apartment building to over see the voter filling out the paperwork. Omar operatives request the ballots and fill them out for the voters, he said. He said, they come to us, they come to our homes. They said, this year you will vote for Ilhan. They said, we will make the absentee ballots. We will fill out the forms for you. And when you get them back, we will again fill it out and send it. There was no need to go to the voting site because the Omar operatives told him you stay home and you will not go to the place. After the ballots are signed and documented, the harvester said he got paid. I just don't understand why Ilhan Omar was not investigated for her immigration fraud scheme by marrying her brother. Whatever happened to that? Is it the case that if you're a Democrat and you're protected by Democrats and you're a progressive, you never get in trouble for anything? That has to change. And I've been thinking a lot about this issue of corruption. There comes a time, and and this is true in a lot of countries around the world, and I think it's a pretty much foreign experience, if you'll pardon the pun, uh, foreign experience for Americans to understand what happens when a society becomes completely corrupt from top to bottom. There are obviously nations around the world where if you want to get anything done of any import, there are bribes involved. You have police who are, you know, easily bribed and that's just part of the system and don't enforce the law. You know, for such a long time, the United States stood head and shoulders above most of the rest of the world because we held ourselves to high standards of honor and integrity. Not that there weren't exceptions to that, but when you have a political system that is just rife with corruption, that's bad enough. But then you have people within that same system who could do something about it and don't because they are also corrupt. What do you do? What do you do? I mean, look at Portland, look at Seattle, look at what has gone on in some of these cities. Look at when we had the church closures and shutdowns in California and the people who were out there protesting with Black Lives Matter were perfectly fine. Nobody cracked down on them. No problem whatsoever. And when you have violence going on in some of these cities, Minneapolis included, that was the original site of all of this mayhem. And you have Democrats in place and they're not going to crack down on anybody. Now defund the police. What a great idea. Of course, the people who most need the police, it could easily be argued, are the very people who they want to take the police away from. People in these urban areas, they need the police. And if you look at some of the stats on the way they feel about defunding the police, that's the last thing they want. They don't want the police to go away. Now what kind of protection do you have for your neighborhood? Look at what's going on in New York City. 
So the corruption is absolutely rife. And you see this from top to bottom in leftist cities. My question to a lot of people is what comes next? What do you think comes next when there is absolute rife corruption? It becomes institutionalized. We already have that when you talk about the deep state, when you talk about the swamp in Washington, D.C. Some of those people are so deeply entrenched, you can't get rid of them. And many people have commented on the fact that they give credit to President Trump for trying to deal with the deep state and the swamp, but he didn't do a good enough job trying to get some of these people out. Boy, you know, easier said than done, folks. How would you like to step into the job of the presidency and deal with absolute corruption and absolute, you know, swamp foolery, if you want to call it that? And it's just person after person after person after person, not just the low level bureaucrats, but the highest elements of some of these federal agencies should have been dealt with years ago, many years ago. But it wasn't. And I give President Trump some credit for trying to do what he can to out the deep state and right wrongs and do things like fight for General Flynn and some of the other things that they've been doing. But boy, we got to deal with this. Because once it's institutionalized, and as I said, you could make the argument that it already is institutionalized in Washington, what hope is there? And now you have people in the United States who keep voting for these people. They may not know what's going on, but at some level you have to know what's going on. If you turn on the news and you see rioting, doesn't that bother you at all? Would you want to live in a neighborhood where that was going on, where you see black business owners who are losing their businesses in the name of Black Lives Matter? How does that compute? Or you see black people who are like David Dorn, who were murdered in the course of the Minneapolis riots. I thought black lives matter. They do matter, but they don't matter if you're not part of the Marxist revolutionary cause. You see, so we have revolution and we have institutionalized corruption. And I'm so glad to have seen over the weekend this wonderful movement of prayer, Franklin Graham and thousands of other people descending upon Washington to pray for our country. It's exactly what needs to happen. But I will say it needs to happen, not just on the mall. It needs to happen in your home. It needs to happen in your church or your Bible study or with your Christian friends at your family dinner table to pray for this nation. If God doesn't turn this around, nobody can. I have never made the mistake, and I don't think you make the mistake either, of thinking that one man can come into office and solve everything. Just snap his fingers, have a good plan, and execute it, and everything will work fine. The basic problem is the human heart. It has been ever so since the garden, and it will be so until Christ returns and judges the world in righteousness. The human heart is the problem. And the reason we need to remember that is because Christians are uniquely positioned to be able to deal with what fundamentally ails the heart of mankind, and that is sin. That's the problem. What is the solution? The solution is atonement for sin and transformation by the power of the Holy Spirit. And it all comes about by looking to the cross, looking to see what Jesus Christ has done for us, paying the price for our sin, shedding his own blood, dying and rising again on the third day, reconciling those who believe in him to the Father once again, putting into us by faith the Holy Spirit who indwells us. And we are born again by the Spirit of God. It's the only way. You have to be born twice. 
You were born as a physical baby. You need to be born again spiritually. And then your new life begins. Then the life of the peace that passes understanding begins. It's not going to come about through rioting. It's not going to come about through looting. It's not going to come about through social justice initiatives, folks. It's going to come about by the faithful preaching of the gospel and the prayers of God's people for his mercy and grace on this nation that he has blessed so much over the last 240 years. So please, I would ask you and really beg you, please continue to pray for the United States. This is where we live. It's where we're raising our children and our grandchildren. They should matter to us. We can't give up on this nation any more than God gives up on us. Continue to lift up this nation before the Lord. We're going to have to leave it there. Thank you for being with us on Janet Mefford today. Always a pleasure to be with you. We'll see you next time. 